Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday we release these special episodes where we look back at content from our earlier years, sometimes single stories, sometimes whole episodes. Keep in mind that years ago, people might have worded things differently than they would today. As always, the title of the whole series, Risk, is itself a content warning. This week, the seventh episode of our second year, it premiered in January of 2011. Now, there is an animal injury in this episode, and Danny LaBelle uses various accents for his friends and people in the neighborhood, but really, we feel like Danny does it with love. So without further ado, here is the episode we call In the Flesh. I don't want to play no kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison that was our dear friend alec gross up top he always sends us the most amazing stuff his latest ep is called rose tattoo and this is gospel claws behind me now now the theme of our show today is in the flesh stories that get kind of physical rather tactile um in the realm of the senses as they say we're gonna start with the gorgeous bonnie levison with a story we call back in the saddle again I developed my acute fear of horses when I was 12 years old. My parents sent me to an all-girls summer camp in rural Minnesota run by two very nice lesbians who truly believed that one of the great ways to build a young girl's self-esteem was through circus training. And by circus training, I don't mean dressing up like a clown. I mean running around a ring after a very large horse, attempting to leap up on its back and perform tricks. Now, this is fantastic if you are an Olympic gymnast, but if you are me, an oversized, gawky, uncoordinated 12-year-old, it was a disaster. I managed to avoid getting on a horse for the next 25 years, but it is now 25 years later. I'm with my family. I'm married. I have two daughters, and we are on the beautiful island of Jamaica having a fantastic vacation, and it's all going very, very well. Everyone's having such a good time. 
until my family discovers the activities desk at the hotel. I'm in the hotel room and my family comes up to the room and they're like, Mom, Mom, there's this great trip up into the mountains. I'm like, that's great. It's a plantation. Wonderful. And we're going to ride horses. I'm like, wait, okay, wait a minute. You know I'm afraid of horses. Uh, I'm not doing that. And they're like, oh, Mom, come on. And my husband's on come on. You can do it. They say the horses are gentle. And I, and I just said, look, I, I will go. I resigned myself to going, but I'm not going to get on a horse. So we make the trip plans, and the next morning arrives. We were greeted by our driver, whose name was Junior. He was a 60-something Rastafarian with a beautiful white smile and very bloodshot eyes. He drove for a company called the No Problem Car Service. We got into his broken-down Buick without any shock absorbers, as we later found out, and we began on the death-defying trip up the mountainous roads to the plantation, and I was very grateful for the Bob Marley music and the secondhand marijuana smoke that Junior somehow left behind in the car because we were a little more relaxed than we might have been. We made our way up the mountain safely, thank God, and finally got to the plantation. It was actually this beautiful plantation, and the owner of the plantation, this wonderful, beautiful Jamaican lady, came out of the building and greeted us. And she took us over to the stables, and there was our guide. And he has my children's and my husband's horses waiting for us. And then he comes up to me, and he says, Lady, this horse is for you. We have a special horse for you. And I said, No, you don't. I'm not riding. And I look at my husband, and he looks back at me and said, Don't worry, honey. I called ahead. They have a very gentle horse for you. You have nothing to worry about. And the guide brings out of the stable what must have been the old yeller of Jamaica. This is a slant-backed, sway-backed, gray-spotted horse who could barely walk. And I looked at this horse, and I thought, this is my moment. I am going to get on the horse, and I am going to ride a horse. I've got to get beyond this fear. So with the help of the guide and my husband, they shove me up on top of the horse, and off we go. With every step of the horse, my fear seemed to fall away because the horse knew what it was doing. It was just walking right in line behind the guide. And I found that eventually I was not nervous anymore and I actually began to enjoy the ride. As the horses walk, I look behind me and we've left the plantation far behind and suddenly there is nothing in sight. The buildings are gone. To my left is this very, very thick jungle. We're in the middle of a massive field of tall grass that is swaying in the breeze. It's like we're floating. And to our right is the Jamaican Blue Mountains, as far as the eye can see until you see ocean. It is absolutely magnificent, and I am really enjoying myself. But my horse is slow, and I find myself sort of lagging behind, and they're getting further and further ahead. And suddenly my horse decides to stop and start eating some of the grass. And I can't get him to move, and I'm pulling on the reins, and I'm feeling a little frustrated, and I... I'm also feeling a little cocky because I think I can now ride, and I'm trying to get this horse to move. And I look up, and I see the guide and my family bearing off to the left, and they don't realize that I'm this far behind, and suddenly they're out of sight entirely. And there I am on this horse trying to get him to move all by myself. There is nothing, not a building, not a human, nothing. It's just us. And as I'm trying to get my horse to move, I see a rustling in the distance. It seems to be coming towards us. Suddenly, I see what it is. It is two dogs that are racing with 
great speed and seemingly anger. And their mouths are covered in what looks like foam. And I, I realize in that moment that they're rabid. And I am desperately trying to get my horse to move, and he won't. And the dogs make their way towards us, and the first dog leaps onto the front leg of my horse and bites right into it. The other dog goes to his rear hind leg and bites into it, and blood is flying. And my poor horse, if a horse can scream, screams and cries. The dogs finally let go, and my horse begins to gallop. I've never galloped on a horse before. I'm terrified. I'm leaning forward, holding onto the neck of the horse with my left hand, and my right hand is holding on to the horse's mane. And I'm just holding on for dear life, and we're galloping, and we're galloping, and we're leaving the dogs behind, but we're galloping, and I'm hoping that this horse will slow down, and finally the horse just stops. And I'm thanking God we're going to be okay. But then he leaps up into the air onto his hind legs into what I consider the Roy Rogers position and my body can't hold on and I feel my body flying off of the horse and I'm suspended this this moment it's like I'm standing still I'm, I'm floating in the air and I'll never forget it it's like time stopped but suddenly time picked up again and I plummeted to the ground and as I land I fall onto my right arm and I know it's broken. It's a pain I've never experienced before. And I'm lying there in the field. My horse has galloped away. And I'm just hoping that my family shows up because, by the way, where are they? No one is there for me. And I look up, and the dogs are coming at me. I thought we'd lost them, but there they are. And I'm lying there, and I am in acute pain, and these dogs are running towards me, and I think I'm about to die. I'm pretty sure that's it. And as the dogs come towards me and closer and closer, I scream for help, and I look up, and in that very thick jungle, where I thought no creature was, comes one Jamaican, four Jamaicans, 10 Jamaicans, 15 Jamaicans, they come running through the jungle. And as the dogs leap onto me, and I think they're just basically going to kill me right there, they get to me and they yank the dogs off me and they contain them. And I'm lying there, and they're holding me, and they're helping me, and they run for help, and they saved my life. It was unbelievable. I looked up, and there is my family, finally, making their way back towards me with looks of complete horror on their faces. I'm taken to a Jamaican doctor who performs uh, surgery on my arm without any anesthesia. It was a country doctor, and it was probably more pain than it was when I fell, but my arm is back in place. I ended up wearing a cast for three months, which was the bad news, but the good news is that my family will never ask me to get on a horse again. On a big blue day This is Risk, and this ridiculousness comes to us from Uncle Neptune. Now we're going to hear from the great Danny LaBelle, who has his own podcast called Comical Radio. 
Once Uncle Neptune wraps things up, we'll hear Danny's story called The Chickens of Bushwick. On a big blue day, the birds sing their song. The clouds are torn away. Now we can all sing along. Well, this story, I, I've been living in the same apartment for five years, and I'm on the first floor, and I share the backyard with Ecuadorian gangsters. <laughs> and out the window, my backyard has always looked like a prison yard for years. Rusty weights and a bench press and barbed wire and just broken bottles. Very depressing to look at. One morning I wake up and I'm like, it's five in the morning, I look outside and I'm like, that's it. I'm done with this. I'm changing shit. I go out there, start cleaning up the backyard. It's around 11 a.m. My neighbors wake up, they're like, what are you doing? Now my neighbor Blanco, he's like the main Ecuadorian, and that's a nickname he has, Blanco. He's, um, what can I say that's not too incriminating? Well, he's, uh, he spent a lot of time in, in juvie, and he was reformed there uh, because he discovered that he's into art, so now he does tattoos out of the apartment across the hall from me, and like the most sketchy looking people are always coming and getting tatted up. Every now and then, uh, something happens and he chases someone with a bat. That's basically it. <laughs> 11 a.m., he comes out and he says, well, what are you doing? I said, I'm turning this backyard around. This is probably like the first time we ever spoke in five years. He goes, I'll help you. So we're, we're, he comes out, we start working together, we start becoming friends. Uh, around one in the afternoon, my upstairs neighbor pokes her head out the window. She goes, are you guys cleaning? It was like the Berlin Wall coming down or something. She, she says, I can't believe it. I'm, I'm coming down to help. But uh, the point is, uh, we're, all, we're all out there in the backyard for three days. We turn this horrible backyard into this beautiful backyard. And I look at it and I'm like, you know, we all come together like a community, like a building. And, and in the process, me and Blanco become very, very close. We were hanging out, like, even after, the, you know, we're getting beers after cleaning, and can't believe we've never talked all this time. I get this crazy, I've always tried to make the city into the suburbs, you know, to try and make it more livable. Like, I bought a giant refrigerator from a garage sale that I had to take apart and reassemble in my kitchen, just because I was like, I'm tired of small refrigerators, you know? <laughs> And then I get this crazy idea. I'm like, you know what would make this really, you know, not the hellish city that I live in? Fresh eggs in the morning, you know? And I'm just, so I knock on Blanco's door. I'm like, how do you feel about we build a chicken uh, hutch in the backyard? We get some chickens, fresh eggs. We never have to pay for eggs again. Like, like that's a major expense in my life. All the money I've been pouring into eggs all the years. That's over. He's like, yeah, yeah, son, that's a great idea. Damn, I don't know why I never thought of that. So he's like, where are we going to get chickens? Live poultry shop? So we go into Bushwick, this live poultry shop. The next morning, we're going to buy some chickens, have fresh eggs. We're turning our lives around. Things are going to change. 
Arabic guy runs the place, and uh, we go in. We're like, we need, uh, we need uh, some live chickens, uh, taking them to go. And, uh, <laughs> and he goes, my friend uh, is illegal. New York City, you cannot buy uh, live chickens. You can only buy dead chicken. I can kill it for you, but. So Blanco like pulled me over and said, fuck this, man, we're gonna steal chickens. Fuck this. <laughs> we're taking the chickens. You distract him, I'm taking the chicken. <laughs> man, we're doing this? Hell yeah, we're doing this. Don't be such a pussy white boy, come on. I'm like, all right, I'm on board. <laughs> So like I start asking all these inane chicken questions to the guy and I'm watching out. You gotta understand this was like this chicken live poultry shop that really looked like I'm Jewish and I guess there's a little part in my head that relates everything to the Holocaust. I don't, anytime I, I've dated a girl who's not Jewish and I've, I go home, which is all, you know, I only date girls that are not Jewish, just somehow works out that way and we go home to her family and I meet them, the first thought that always kind of pops into my head is like, if there was another Holocaust, would these people hide me? Or would they, or would they say, no, our, our daughter's with one of them. Uh, this is the address. And then I look around the house to see if they would hide me where I could hide. So I'm in this place and it, and it looks like a chicken Auschwitz and uh, these chickens are just like crammed in horrible situations and I'm like, we're liberating the Jews, you know, let's do this. They all have bird flu, they got like mucus coming off their beaks, you know. So I'm trying to distract the guy and I, I don't know what to say, I'm asking him questions. He's like, so uh, how many, what's the most chicken you've ever sold to one person at one time? <laughs> And in the corner of my eye, I see like Blanco chasing one of the loose chickens around. It's like this Chaplin-esque chase going on, you know? <laughs> the guy is like looking to see what I'm looking at and I'm just like, hey, so you ever get turkey in or is that just a Thanksgiving time of year type of thing? I don't know, my friend. What is he doing? What is he doing? <laughs> so, so Blanco notices, the guy notices him and he goes, let's get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Like, there was no need to make a mad dash, but we did. <laughs> we, get, we get outside the place, and there's a Spanish guy who I guess was noticing everything going on, and he says something in, I don't know Spanish, but like, And Blanco's like, si, si. So basically, the guy had told them, you know, if you're looking for live chickens, uh, I know a place that they ignore the rules. And, uh, you know, you just go up to them and they'll sell you under the counter live chickens. You know, we go there. It's a Spanish-run place. It's like, uh, this guy's like, yeah, I can get you some live chickens out. And they talk in Spanish. So, uh, so they give us this nice chicken. And then, and then the guy comes up and he goes, do you want a rooster? And he pulls out this beautiful, I can't explain how beautiful a rooster is. If you haven't seen one, like really up close, it's got like a mane. It was a gorgeous rooster. And I said to Blanco, we probably need a rooster to 
you know, make the chicken have eggs. Now, it turns out we later find out that it's actually the wrong thing. Like, they fertilize the eggs, and that actually ruins the whole thing. You don't need roosters at all. They actually ruin the egg thing at all, all together. But he's like, yeah, we'll take that rooster. Look at that, it's an ill-looking rooster. <laughs> we get this beautiful rooster, and we're walking down Graham Avenue with a chicken and a rooster, and we're feeling pretty good about ourselves, you know? We're changing shit, making our lives better. Go home, we build a chicken hutch together, you know? We put them out there, we're waiting for eggs. Every morning we're going, we're checking for eggs, no eggs, no eggs, no eggs. What it turns out is that we bought a, a, an old chicken. It was postmenopausal. And then the rooster, I guess from being in a dark indoors place for so long, had no concept of when it was the morning or when it was night. It had a bad internal clock. And it starts crowing at all times, like three o'clock in the afternoon. Five in the morning, two in the morning, midnight. It's just like all random, like we would, what, now? Why, today, now, really? But he named it, he named it Juanito, the rooster Juanito, and the chicken was Doña. And Juanito was really a good bird, and like he knew his name. People don't know that, but roosters can learn their name. Like he called Juanito, Juanito, he'd come, he'd run, he'd sit on my window ledge. When, I, when I'd come home, he'd be there, eat out of my hand. Doña was a total bitch, but Juanito, <laughs> she, Doña was really a nasty, Bird. She, we, we bought a little bird. There's a whole other story, but she just killed it right away. She was like, no, no other chickens. I, I really, and that was a, well, I'll tell you very briefly. I got woken up at three in the morning. Like, they killed the little Giuseppe. Oh, she killed her. That fucking bitch killed Giuseppe. We got to bury her. At three in the morning, I got dragged out of bed to, to do a burial service where we had to say a prayer and bury the little Giuseppe. So then we're like, all right, we'll stick with Juanito and, and Doña. And, uh, and everything's okay for a while, you know. Blanco and, and, and Juanito are, are real close. And one morning, I'm lying in bed with my girlfriend. We get a knock on, on uh, our, our, you know, I live on the first floor, so the window near my bed, I stay like this crazy knocking. And I, I go to see who it is, and there's an Irish woman from the building next door, like from Ireland. Irish and uh, she's pregnant like probably like seven months pregnant and I just open the door and she says hey, you're a fucking rooster I'm like, what? I said, that's your fucking rooster out there you know it's actually it's like a joint rooster it's a shared rooster but it's partially my rooster she goes that fucking rooster has been waking me up at random times I'm pregnant you better get rid of that rooster I'm having the police come. It's illegal to have a rooster in New York. I'm like, all right, well, let me get your phone number. I'll talk it over with the other owner of the rooster, and we'll see what we can do. So I get her, and I, I go, in and I'm like, Blanco, we have a little situation. You know, it's a woman, she's very pregnant, and uh, she, I guess her pregnancy's getting a little fucked with because of Juanito. I think we have to get rid of Juanito. And he flew off the handle, like shit got crazy. Like I never seen, like the thug came out. It's like, white people are trying to ruin this neighborhood. They take away my little Juanito. He's all I got. I'm like, oh, you got me. I'm your, no, 
that's, that's my boy. I won't let it happen. It will not happen. I'm like, oh shit, this is really serious. He is not letting go of this route. I'm like, well, you talk to her. And I put him on the phone with her and, and they, he disappears with my cell phone. He comes back, he's like, it's all taken care of. We can keep him. I'm like, really? And he goes, yeah. And I'm like, I don't know how he pulled that up. This woman was very angry, but okay, fine. <coughs> well, a few weeks later, an inspector from the city uh, shows up and he, he knocks on the door. He goes, uh, you guys have a rooster? I'm like, oh shit. So I run across the hall to Blanco. I'm like, there's somebody from the city. They're asking about the rooster. And we live in a really shitty building. So you can pick up the wood floorboards in the kitchen. So he's like, oh shit, I got an idea. So he puts the rooster under the floorboards. And the inspector comes in. And it really feels like that scene from Inglorious Bastards, you know? <laughs> the guy, he's just walking around. Do you have any uh, roosters in here? No, no. <laughs> you sure? Uh, I got a report that there's some roosters uh, living here. And uh, nope, no. And then the rooster with its stupid internal clock from under the floorboards. And we're like caught red-handed. And I guess the inspector was a black guy, so Blanco thought he could bond with him over, you know, how white people are ruining the neighborhood. <laughs> And uh, he's like, you don't understand. I had this rooster since I was born, which is probably impossible. I don't know how long roosters live, but I don't think they live like 30 years. And he's like, these white people move into this neighborhood. They're trying to, they're trying to take away my rooster, man. And, and I think the guy was like really creeped out by how crazy, like in love with the rooster he was. And he's like, oh yeah, I totally understand. Don't worry about it. And, uh, and he left and then uh, we get this summons that's like you have a week to get rid of the rooster and the inspector's coming back or it's a $2,000 fine. And I'm like, fuck. I'm like, we gotta get rid of this rooster. And he, he's like, yeah, I mean, we could pay 1000 each. I'm like, but then they keep coming with more fine. I don't have $1,000 to keep this rooster. He's like, we gotta get rid of it a humane way. And he's like crying tears. And he's like, we gotta, we can't let it die. We can't let Juanito die. And I'm like, all right. So I get on the phone, I start, start calling farms. And I'm calling hundreds of farms because what happens is uh, every farm, it turns out, already has a rooster. And you only need one rooster to fertilize the chickens to make more chickens. And if you get a second rooster, they fight. Cockfights. And then, you know, and every farmer was like, you know, we've had our rooster for like six years. We're not willing to let it get into any fights. We don't have a place for a second rooster. So I call the Humane Society. I call a place called Farm Rescue. And I get this voicemail back from Farm Rescue. I left a message. I'm like, we have this rooster. He's a great rooster. He knows his name. You know, <laughs> I'm like, this is not your typical rooster. This is a fantastic state of the art rooster. This is, you know, uh, and, and, and I get a voicemail back from Farm Rescue that goes, hi, um, this is Linda calling from Farm Rescue. We got your message regarding Juanito. Um, I'm sorry, but right now we literally have roosters coming out of our ears. <laughs> literally. I, uh, <laughs> so there's nothing we can do for you. So now it's like two days until D-Day, you know, when the inspector comes back and the $2,000 fine hits. And I'm like, we gotta get rid of this thing. So I go and I scout out a farm myself. It's a petting zoo, it's a pumpkin patch, and it's a farm. And I'm planning a drop and run, you know? I'm gonna bring the rooster, I'm gonna drop it, and I'm gonna run. 
and I get the whole map of the farm planned out and I see the employees posts you know where they're at I'm like I'm gonna get this chicken to Switzerland you know I'm gonna do this and I'm like I can't do it on my own I realize and I'm like Blanco are you on board and he's like no I can't be there to let go of him you gotta get someone else to help you and I remember there's this guy that showed up to a comedy gig that I did once in Jersey and he's kind of like a comedy groupie and uh, he used to push heroin in the 70s and he ran an illegal gambling place up in the Bronx and uh, he, you know he spent a lot of time in jail but he's like a mastermind criminal and now he's reformed and he has like a wife and family but he you know he comes to all my Jersey gigs and I call up Jersey Georgie and I'm like you know you still got the criminal in you you know <laughs> he's like yeah I still got the criminal in me I don't know why he sounds like that now he doesn't but uh he's like I got the criminal in me you know I go uh he goes what are you planning and I go drop and run you know uh basically have a rooster and uh, I want to drop it at a farm that's already rejected me for taking a rooster and we'll just let him figure out, fight it out with the other rooster and uh, may the best rooster win. Well, this is a really ridiculous idea, but uh, I'll pick you up tomorrow at 12 o'clock. You got a map of the farm? I'm like, yeah. And I do, we have to go past the kids' soccer field. We take a right at the pig pen past the pumpkin patch, there's the chicken coop. And there's like three employee posts in between. And we get there and the whole time Georgie's like, I feel alive again, you know? I've been, been bull chumming like this in years. I feel it rushing through my blood. I'm meeting a buddy of mine, another comic, Dan Natterman, to see a movie after this. And uh, I figured four hours is plenty of time for a drop and run. But I had no idea how precise the criminal mind is because we got there and he was like scouting out everything he's like we got to learn the employees names we got to find out a little bit about them what makes them tick who are these people when do they take lunch breaks and the whole thing is just like taken or three hours into it i'm like i gotta meet him in an hour and i'm like how about this let's just drive the car into the farm drop the rooster and drive right out he's like works for me <laughs> and we do that and uh you know i drop the rooster we drive away and then he's like you know i gotta drop you off uh you know i can't go into manhattan there's legal reasons i still don't know <laughs> he just drops me off near yankee stadium <laughs> he's like find your way back I call my friend Natterman. I'm like, look, man, I'm running late for this movie. He's like, I don't understand why. I said, you know, drop and run with a rooster. He's like, some life you live, LaBelle. <laughs> and that's the story. Thank you, guys. Greg Fitzsimmons, Fitzdog Radio. I'm 44 years old, and with that age comes 
a shrinking of the distance between fantasy and reality. And with that sad revelation comes less joy, less highs, less lows, because fantasies are your highs and realities are your lows. So I was given the opportunity to host the Porn Awards in Las Vegas, the 25th anniversary of the Porn Awards, and it was being aired on Showtime. And so part of me was like, well, I don't know, this is this is not going to be good for my career. I've worked really hard to have an image of a, a good guy, somebody you'd trust on a sitcom or a late night talk show or just as a human being. I don't know that I want to be seen as somebody who's actually accepting money in the porn industry. So I take the gig because the fantasy is it's porn. I'm married at this point nine years, happily married, never cheated on my wife. The fantasizing in my marriage then obviously is huge and porn is something that you just say, well, I'm not going to get in trouble. I'm going to the porn awards. This is like third person excitement. There's no, I don't know them. And now I'm going to get to know them. Maybe I can go to second person porn. Maybe I'll get that much closer to the reality of the most sexual people in the world. So my wife comes with me, of course. She's a seeker. She wants to know what it's like. And so she comes. But there was still, when she wasn't around, there were porn stars. It was, it was at a big hotel in Vegas, and they're flirting with me. Like famous porn stars. They know that the next night I'm going to be in front of 7,000 people, most of whom are in the porn industry. And one nice thing about them raises their stock a lot. They could go from seven, 800 bucks a scene to becoming a contract girl, which means you only do X number of movies a year. You get paid a lot of money. And I hold that power in my hand. So I guess the biggest loss of innocence moment for my wife was when I'm on stage and I'm hosting the different categories. And my wife is aware of porn. She's a cool Jewish chick from Manhattan. She's been around. I don't mean around. I mean, she's seen things. And so she saw things she hadn't seen. How do you then make love to your wife when she's seen the Olympics of what's possible in sex? The one category that sticks out in my mind, and she talked about it later in her mind, was best double anal. Now, double anal, to me, feels like, wow, that's pretty intense. You know, like, it just felt unfair that there were nominees, and you go like, look, anybody that can do that should get an award. G give them all a trophy. That's astounding. So I, so I do the Porn Award, and it's strange because there's no coincidence that with the weekend they do the Porn Awards is the same weekend that the computer, uh, the electronics convention is in Vegas. So you've got 7,000 porn stars and then maybe 50,000 guys that are, they're, they're like the guys that nobody ever fantasizes about at, at, at the same weekend that the people everybody fantasizes about and they when they go to the convention all you see are these hot porn stars dressed in outfits that are like a four-year-old girl that's the size of the of the outfits they're wearing and it's like a badge of honor to have a camel tail like the women most women would maybe you know fix their cleavage these women are trying to produce the greatest camel toe pod they, they had a camel toe contest on the floor well, they, it wasn't technically a contest, but me and my friends were, were scoring them on it. 
so you got all these fat guys with band-aids holding their glasses together and they've got their arm around a porn star with their cell phone take, snapping a photo for what what do you think the the idea is you're going to show your friends and they're being like oh my god you fuck porn stars and here's the reality you paid ten dollars to put your arm around a woman and take a picture of it because you're a loser for me, as a 44-year-old man, coming off the, the porn convention, I found myself not interested in just the straight-up, hardcore sex. You know, split wet beavers and bukkake shots and three ways. To me, it's now about the thing I hated the most. When I was young, I don't want a story. I don't want dialogue. Don't pretend this is it. Show me the fucking. Now that I'm 44 kind of want the story you know how did they meet are they in love is the asian girl's parents gonna be upset that she's dating a black man i want to know what's happening in the story and to me it's all about the setup it's all about it seeming real like the voyeur thing where there's there happens to be a blind open and you can see a woman and i don't care what she's doing it's all about it seeming real because fantasy is gone for me now. The porn convention turned the lights on in a room that I never wanted to know the the details of. And so now I need to, to go back to the root. I want to see accidental nudity. Like for me, even a strip club, I don't, there, I don't buy into the fantasy in a strip club that that woman standing in front of me who's like a perfect 10 with fake boobs, fake tan, highlighted hair, glitter on her tits and she's making eye contact with me and acting turned on nope nothing i feel nothing from that i get off on looking in a window when i'm walking my dog and thinking maybe i'm going to see some woman who's getting undressed like for me a great strip club would be just that just set up little scenarios that seem real like you know, the strippers shouldn't just be naked. They should, like, maybe it's a woman in a bathrobe and her hair's wet and she's walking across the floor of the strip club and she steps on her own robe and it falls off. And then she clutches her breasts and screams and runs off. That That's perfect. Just little things like that. Maybe a woman sitting in front of a mirror and put blinds that I'm peering through as she brushes her hair and maybe, you know, pops a zit on her shoulder. That would get me off. So I want to thank the porn convention <laughs> for turning me into a, a peeping Tom. Even if it's on film, I want to feel like, like I'm seeing something I'm not supposed to see.
my aunt's boyfriend's oldest child. He was uh, 32 years old at the time, still living with mom or with dad. <laughs> uh, barely had a part-time job. Spent most of his money on weed and beer. Sounds like he was living the life, but uh, <laughs> he was actually kind of a dumbass, and uh, nobody really liked him at all. So one day, uh, he came over to hang out with us, and uh, we let him hang out because he brought all the weed and beer and everything, and uh, didn't charge us for any of it. So we're like, yeah, come on over and hang out, for sure. We got the trampoline out back, and we're all doing crazy flips, doing jumps off the side of the wall and jumping back, and backflips off the roof onto the trampoline and stuff. I mean, we've been practicing for months and months, and finally, uh, Eddie's like, oh man, that looks fun. I want to try it. I want to jump off the roof. We're like, all right, dude, but you got to be careful. You can't jump in the middle of the trampoline. Oh, I know, I know, I know. I know what I'm doing. Don't worry. Don't worry. Like, dude, I'm serious. Don't jump in the middle of the trampoline. You'll fucking hit the ground. So what does he do? He gets all the way up on the top of the roof, jumps off, and jumps right into the center of the trampoline. But instead of jumping with his feet, he jumps with his ass first. <laughs> and just all the way down to the ground, hard as can be, pow, just slams the fucking ground. <laughs> as he's on his way up from the rebound of the trampoline, he's in so much pain that he's like kicking like a cartoon monkey like, in the air, just like, just legs flailing, going back and forth. And as he hits the trampoline, his legs are still running, and he just shoots off the trampoline, still running, and does like three full laps around our backyard, just howling in pain, going, ah! <laughs> running around, look like his ass is on fire in a cartoon or something, just in circles. Well, it turns out he like fractured his tailbone when he did that. So I don't blame him for running around, but... We never even offered to help him. We are just laughing our asses. <laughs> Went and grabbed another beer and stole some more of his weed and threw it in the pipe. Because <laughs> we knew he would be leaving soon. <laughs> All around the world, wherever you are, down to the street, That was a long stretch there. People were packing it in today. After the Chickens of Bushwick by Danny LaBelle, we heard Animal Hop Remix by Cow Cube. And then a radio story from the wonderful Greg Fitzsimmons. Just a great guy. He has his own podcast called Fitz Dog Radio. So we called his story Fitz Dog Porneo. And then we heard a mashup called Whole Lot of Sex Machine by Fitz Unix. And we heard something a little bit different. We heard a radio story called Ow, Ow, Ow by Pepe Aguilar. And it was edited by the artist known as me. Not me, Kevin Allison, but the artist known as me who creates the Mangled Meditations show for the Dope Fiend podcast for us lovers of the old wacky tobacco. Right now we're hearing Polita Espinola by who else? But Gigi Allen's dick. 
Okay. Next up, we have the wonderful Matt Higgins. This is, I think, his third time on the show. This time, he's not singing. He's just speaking. A story called Open Casket. My dad had been sick for a very long time, and he died at home in his bed. And I was kneeling on my mom's side of the bed at the top, uh, looking at him, and my mom was very, very close to him, and there was a, uh, a hospice nurse there. My younger brother and sister were right there too. I have six brothers and sisters. I'm one of seven. I'm right in the middle. And shortly after my dad passed, my brother Steve, who is a neonatologist, he's a, a, a baby doctor, and he came sort of bursting into the, uh, my parents' bedroom, and he still had his hospital greens on. It was about 8.30 or 8.45 in the morning, and he had been on call at the hospital, and he came right over. And he was the doctor that pronounced my father dead. And together we, you know, made my dad look good. We, we bathed him and stuff. We washed him and put nice pajamas on him. And uh, we shined his shoes because my dad loved to have his shoes shined. He just, you know, it's a little thing, but it's something that I think he really valued was shiny shoes. And then we decided not to call the undertaker because we thought it would be nice to have him around for a major part of the day. And neighbors started to bring over meatballs and my uncle came over and he brought some Heineken beer and kind of a party broke out. And so my brother Steve and I were alone in the bedroom with my dad and my brother was sitting at the foot in the, of the bed in the spot where just a few hours earlier the the parish priest had doused my father with holy water and said go forth Christian soul go forth Christian soul and ironically enough, that was the same spot that years before my brother Steve had woken up my parents at like two or three in the morning to inform them that there was no God. <laughs> so my brother's sitting there at the foot of my dad and he's looking straight up at him and I'm sitting off to the side by the end table, by the, the table next to the bed. My brother Steve goes, huh. And I said, what? And he says, uh, Dad's got a deviated septum. I said, wow. How do you know? He said, well, come here, look. So we got down, and my brother Steve kind of examined my dad's nose, and he said, look, you can see that Dad has a deviated septum. That was the reason that he, that he snored so much. And so then, so then I laid back and I said, hey, 
do I have a deviated septum? So my brother examined me and he said, absolutely not. So um, after a couple of weeks, I had a dream. And in the dream, I was standing in my parents' kitchen and I was making waffles and I felt somebody standing behind me and I turned and standing there is my father and he's, he's in his suit and he's wet and he's covered in mud and grass and I had this feeling holy shit we fucked up <laughs> and my dad you know he had no tolerance for incompetence at all <laughs> none so I thought he must be so pissed off you know waking up in a coffin and you know having to escape from the coffin and break the seal and somehow you know penetrate the concrete box and then you know claw his way out of his premature grave and then walk five miles to our house i mean the walk alone from the cemetery was enough probably to send him into a tizzy and i know because in high school Oftentimes, I was supposed to pick him up at the train when he got done work, and on a regular basis, I would forget to pick him up, and I had that same feeling where I'd be like standing somewhere in the house, and I'd turn, and I'd see him there, and I'd be like, oh, shit, and he'd be like, yo, Matthew, if brains were dynamite, you wouldn't have enough to blow your nose, you know, ah. and, uh, you know, and, and the train station was so much closer than the cemetery, and there he was with mud on his shoes, and... I was petrified. And then he said, it's okay. I'm alive. Call your brother. So I called my brother Steve and um, it was kind of like, you know, like an MGM film phone call where like, uh, everybody, you know, the person's really happy, and they pick up the phone, they, so they say, hello, and then, then there's some terrible news, like, hello, yes, this is he, no! You know, so I called my brother Steve, I was like, hey, he's like, hey, Matt, how's it going? I'm like, you're not gonna believe this, but daddy is alive, and he's, he's in the kitchen with me, and Steve was like, no, oh no, I'm such a terrible doctor, oh, this is awful, you know, this is, so and my, my dad's going like, no, just tell him, just tell him it's okay, tell him just to get over here, so sort of instantaneously, my brother is now in the kitchen, he and my dad are sitting down, and I'm making the waffles, and they're talking, and they're very, very happy, and I'm making waffles, and I'm actually serving them the waffles on a spatula, which in real life, years before, my father had cracked over my brother's head and broken the handle off, but we still used it. It was still functional. <laughs> so, uh, so I turned, and as I turned to serve them the waffles, I noticed that the conversation had deteriorated and 
just become kind of like bickering, you know, everyday bickering. And this dream was so vivid and so real that for a long time afterwards, I had to think, I had moments where I had to think like, oh my God, did this actually happen? And I, no, it couldn't have happened. Did this, did this happen? And then it wasn't a recurring dream, but there were dreams after that that uh, were kind of like continuations of the dream where like dreams sort of revert back to it. And uh, it would be kind of like, you know, like, ah, oh, remember when you jackasses you know, buried me alive, that kind of a thing. And, um, uh, I don't know what any of those dreams mean, but I will tell you that I do indeed have a snoring problem. And there's a pretty good chance that I have a deviated septum. And I know what that means. That means that deep within my psyche, my father is buried alive. Lucy Schwartz, and this was Risk. Risk is produced by me, Kevin Allison. Our live show producer in New York is Michelle Walson. Our live show producer in Los Angeles is Madison Perry. Our episode editor is Mike Cades. Our story editors are David Crabb, Jeff Mersel, and Andy Croner. Our associate producers are Chris Castiglione, Jackie Jennings, Nina Moses, Paul Gale, and Catherine Green. The episode is over. Shut it off. Here's only shadows